So today is the first Sunday of Eastertide. Eastertide is the liturgical designation for the 50 days between Easter and Pentecost. Eastertide is a time of celebration. We know that life has been changed for all time because of Easter, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's also the time for us to figure out what does Easter mean for us? What's the meaning of Easter in our lives? We have 50 days to figure that out, so people get busy. You got work to do. It's Easter tide. We have to figure that out. And just as the first disciples had to figure out, what does this mean for them? What's going on here? So too, we're to figure that out. Easter tide is when we ask the question, so what? So what about the Easter in our lives? For Easter to have meaning, it has to be more than just an accepted historical fact. That gets us very little. Our Eastertide journey today begins in John chapter uh, 20, verse 19. This is a difficult passage. Um, For those of you who have preached and and had preaching a part of your life, and I know there's several in the room who have, let me tell you how it is. I'm a pretty transparent guy, if you haven't figured that out. I kind of tell you where I am and what's going on. So there's not much worse feeling than to work all week on a passage and wake up on Sunday morning and think, I don't have a clue what I'm going to say yet. I've written it. But it doesn't work. So I kind of feel that way today because this is a difficult passage. It seems so simple. Two little vignettes that seem so simple. Jesus shows up and, hey, good things happen. Jesus shows up again and another good thing happens. It seems so simple. And yet it is so difficult. This this is an epistemological lesson today. Epistemology meaning simply, how do I know what I know? What do I believe? And so this is really a very deep and difficult question for us this morning and passage as we think about Easter for us. Most people think, most scholars think that John is the last gospel written. Most of them are going to put it near the end of the first century, uh, some a little earlier, some a little later, because the truth is we don't really know. But one of the things we do know about the gospel writers, and we often think we're looking at videotape when we read a gospel. That's too old. We often think we're, what's it called now? It's not videotape. We're live streaming when we're looking at the gospel. We often think we're live streaming. I am getting old today. Can't find my phone. Maybe not getting old today. Maybe my oldness is on display today. Let's say it that way. But, but we think we're live streaming. We are not live streaming when we read the gospels. They are written in retrospect. Paul has done most or not all of his writing by the time the Gospels are written. And so each of the Gospel writers actually has a point of view they're trying to express as they're telling the story of what they've seen, of what they've experienced. They put it into a historical context, their historical context and what's been going on. And they are trying to address some of the challenges and some of the issues that are going on in the early church that they've experienced and they're seeing happen. When you come to John, John is normally concerned about, most scholars would think, what his concern is, what is adequate belief? How do we take the reality of the resurrection as our own experience in a way that we might believe, and by believing, as John says, have life in Jesus' name? John is really concerned about what is adequate belief. What does it take? What does it mean to believe? And they have the two vignettes here to try to help us understand what we need to believe about the resurrection in our experience. The first vignette, quite simple, the disciples are together, the doors are locked, and we told they're locked because of fear, fear of the Jews. We don't know if they think they're going to be drug away, but whatever it is, they've gone back to the upper room more than likely, and they've locked the doors. 
um, and, and so they're hearing stories from the women that something unique has happened. They're hearing those stories that maybe Jesus is alive, but they're hearing them with, with real skepticism. Uh, and they really don't have a clue what the women are trying to tell them. And so they're locked in a house, and they're afraid, and they're confused, much as we do often in our lives and even in our churches at times when things begin to change around us in the world. We at least metaphorically lock our doors, do we not? And we say, you've got to stay out there. They're trying to attack the church. I don't mean, I don't mean to be political today, but this idea of a war on Christmas, that, that's the church locking its doors. It's, it, it's okay for us to believe what we believe and for others to believe what they believe. Don't lock the doors. Let us be engaged in the community. But they've locked the doors, sometimes like we lock the doors. And Jesus shows up and he says, peace be with you. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says this in rapid succession twice. Jesus was reminding them that peace and safety comes from him, not from locked doors. That's where they get it. It's not just a greeting that Jesus is giving them. It's not, hey, how you doing? Good to see you today. That's not what's going on when Jesus is saying, peace be with you here. He's telling them this is something that has occurred. God in Jesus Christ's life and resurrection has created peace. This has occurred. This is reality. Peace with God. Because of what Jesus has done, you have peace with God. Because of what Jesus has done, you have possibility of peace with each other. And because of what Jesus has done, we have possibility for peace with ourselves. It is secured. It is theirs. It's a, it, there, it is a reality for taking if we will choose but to take it. That peace with ourselves sometimes is the most difficult part, is it not? I can be at peace with others, be at peace with God, but really I'm not at peace with myself, and then I'm really not at peace with others and God. And so it begins in us, and so Jesus says to them, peace with, be with you. He tells them that all they have witnessed in his life and death and resurrection is the establishment of wholeness in the world. The risen Lord establishes peace in all that means in a holistic way. Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with ourselves, and reconciliation with others. It is the peace that soothes the soul, or as Paul would say, transcends all understanding. This isn't an absence of violence. This is a force of God at work in the world to make the world a good and a positive place. The disciples are overjoyed. They don't really know why they're overjoyed, but Jesus is there, and so some of these things the women have said is really kind of great, and they don't understand it, but really happy to see Jesus. Whew, Jesus, we thought you were gone. And so ends the first vignette a little bit. We'll come back to some other parts of it later. And so the second vignette begins, and and we're told that Thomas wasn't there, and they see Thomas when Jesus showed up. Thomas wasn't there, and they see Thomas, and they say, Thomas, the Lord has risen. And Thomas says, yeah, I don't think so. I I don't think I'll believe it. If we look at the tidbits that that John tells us about Thomas, we get a glimpse of who Thomas really is. And and, and we might get some insights into his absence that day. You know, Thomas probably wasn't afraid. We We often call Thomas doubting Thomas, and then we think he was afraid. If you remember, it was the Thomas who said, when Jesus said, I'm going to Bethany, to, to see Lazarus, uh, he's ill unto death, and, and, and the disciples were saying, oh, Jesus, don't go, don't go, they're going to kill you if you go down there. And what does Thomas say? Let us go with Jesus and die. Now, he didn't understand what Jesus was going to do. He didn't have that. 
but he was a brave individual. I'm willing to go with Jesus and die. He is a person of courage and commitment. Let us go with him and die. We see that Thomas may be a pessimist. Jesus will go down there. This is going to go bad, though. But he's not afraid. A pessimist, but not a coward. I don't know which better, but, but anyway, that's where he is. And whether it's pessimism, there is no reason for us to get back together. Jesus is gone. Or it's disappointment in his own sorrow, so he doesn't show up. Thomas is not there when Jesus shows up. A week later, when Thomas shows up and the disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord, he says, mm, maybe. And then you get this elemental testimony of the church. We have seen the Lord. That is what we declare. But Thomas can't believe that on face value. He says in the strongest language, I will not believe it. If you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the elder son and the story of the, the, the two brothers. And I talked about the elder son who's outside and he says, I will, I, I, I will not go in. That's the same language, the ukthe ethelo here that, that uh, Thomas is using. I don't believe it. I won't believe it unless I see the marks and touch the wounds. Thomas maybe was from Missouri. He had that skepticism of show me. Uh, but he's not just a skeptic. He embodies the great tradition of faith that it stains from or avoids every Gnostic, idealistic, romantic notion of a Christ figure who kind of floats above us in historical, uh, but no historical reality. Thomas is not a doubter. He's just one who insists on concreteness, historical concreteness, who regards as urgent the fact that the risen Christ is indeed the one who was crucified. There has to be continuity. If I'm going to see this and I'm going to believe this, there has to be continuity with the Jesus who walked the earth and the Jesus who has risen. That's the poem that Chuck read for us earlier, where John Updike argues it's either a real resurrection or it's no resurrection at all. That's where Thomas is. And so John is trying to help us get a hold of what does it mean to believe and to adequate believe here, that core purpose of John. And John's directed, as I said, against those false ways of believing. When John wrote his gospel, the heresy of Gnosticism was at work in the church. Some were denying that Jesus was fully human. Others denied that he was fully God. What do you believe matters? Not just believing it was fashionable several years ago, several decades ago, to say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. That's hogwash. It does matter what we believe. It still matters what we believed. Our epistemology, how we know what we know and how we put ourselves into that matters. Throughout the gospel, John is address, uh, addressing this. There are a lot of people who believe but don't believe in the right way. And so we have the leaders of the Jewish nation, the religious leaders, who say to Jesus, show us a sign. Jesus feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. And a few days later, they say to him, well, that was pretty good, Jesus, but now what about that sign Moses did? Can you make manna show up every day? If so, we will believe. It just wasn't going to be enough, no matter what Jesus did. In the story of Lazarus, where Lazarus dies, we see Martha expressing inadequate belief. John has her, the voice of inadequate belief. She says, Jesus, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. And then she says, but I know whatever you ask of God, he'll do for you. And so Jesus goes to the tomb, and he says, roll away the, the stone. And Martha says, Lord, don't do that. It's not going to be good. So it's like that song, you know, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. Well, that's where she is. I believe entirely, but I don't believe that. 
It matters. And so Martha becomes this example for us of, gee, Jesus can do anything, but Jesus, you really can't do that. It is inadequate belief. And here's the key. Martha had all the catechism right, but the reality wrong. We often have our catechism right, and our reality of how we let God live in our life and influence our life and abide by that, totally wrong. As though it's an intellectual assent somehow that is what it takes to believe in God. John says what he has written is written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing that we might have life. It's more than just intellectually acknowledging this. It's about a life-transforming reliance upon Jesus Christ, God's Son. Living our life in a way that says, God guides my life through what I understand about Jesus and my experience with Jesus. Nothing less than that kind of believing issues in a new way of living that is adequate for us to understand God, John's purpose in this gospel. It's interesting, John's word for, for believe is a verb. We don't have that in English. We, we don't have a way to say, I faith that, as though it's something that is a verb, right? Or I, uh, I believe that, as though it's a real action that takes hold in power. But, but in Greek, you have that ability. And so John says, this belief that you have to have is something that is a force in your life. Something that moves you, that compels you, that causes you to act because it is an action in your life. The resurrected Lord speaks to us. As, as Chuck read again, a real resurrection. Not a spiritual metaphorical one, but a real resurrection that we put our belief in that somehow that life is the life that really is real. And it is the one that transforms our lives and how we're to live. John is clear, it's not who you know, or excuse me, it's not what you know, but it's who you know that matters if you're going to have life. Confession is more than words. It is receiving Jesus Christ at an existential level that causes us to change. I live my life differently because I know Jesus. Thomas lived his life differently because he met the Christ. You know, Thomas really had some trouble getting a hold of it. But once he got it, he got it all the way right. He sees Jesus. There is a great uh, 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 piece of art that I encourage you to look at by uh, 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 Michelangelo uh, Caravaggio. Uh, it, it's almost, uh, uh, it, it's the story of Thomas putting his hand into Jesus' side, and it's almost hard to look at it. It feels so realistic. Uh, Michelangelo Caravaggio, not the Michelangelo that did the chapels and all that. This is a different Michelangelo. But, but it is this kind of intense personal thing that's going on. And Thomas gets it all the way right. My Lord and my God, this is an active belief that will lead to life. Thomas was slow, but when he got it, he said, this is how I will live my life and base my life. You are my Lord. You direct my actions. You tell me what to do, where to go, and we know that it goes to India. And my God, the one who's source of all life. That's the kind of confession it takes. That's the kind of belief that it takes. That's where we are. That's where we are today in Eastertide. Can we experience that kind of belief? How do we find it within ourselves? Well, the good news is that Christ gives us the Spirit. And so we don't have to take a carriage story. We don't have to hear what someone else happened. We don't have to take our parents' stories. We don't have to take a rumor. But we have the possibility through the Spirit of God of experiencing Jesus in the same deep kind of way that Thomas did.
So how, what should that cause in our lives? It should cause hope, confidence, belief. But going back to that first vignette, it should also cause us to be active in our Christian lives. After acknowledging the excitement of seeing Jesus, John immediately turns the narrative there in that first vignette to, to the mission of the church. So remember, John's looking back in writing. He's addressing the early stage of a development movement called the church. And he knows there's three aspects to what we're supposed to do once we have that experience of seeing the risen Lord, of experiencing the risen Lord. First, he sends them. He says, as I've been sent, so you're sent. So there's something we should be doing. We should have a sense of purpose and meaning. If you remember last week, we talked about the anxieties that, that uh, uh, Paul Tillich talked about in our own faith and journeys. And, and one of those anxieties was the, the, the possibility of not having meaning or purpose in our lives. So Jesus sends them. The church is not only sent because Christ sends it, but then Jesus empowers them by breathing on them the Spirit who will guide and direct. And so the church no longer has, as we know today, a visible Jesus, but we have the gift of God's Spirit. We are sent and empowered to do what we're called to do. Jesus has sent us and given us the power to do it. So what are we to do? Real obvious there. We're called to forgive. If you forgive anyone, their sins are forgiven. The mission of the church is to forgive. And this forgiveness is serious business. Uh, Walter Brueggemann notes, it's not a cheap, careless, or romantic kind of forgiveness. It's shown by the fact that sins can actually be retained. But we are to forgive. We are to seek out and to forgive people. And what does it mean to forgive someone? It means to love them, to care for them, to accept them, to help them be the best they can be. Like I said to these kids today, you all are helping these kids grow up to be people of faith, to be people who who are following God and understanding God's spirit. That's what we're to do, to help people do that, bring forgiveness and love into people's life, bring reconciliation into their life. And when we do that, we experience life, purposeful life, meaningful life, like John talked about. Easter time, our Easter tide, it's a time to figure out what the resurrection means to us not some theoretical ascent that causes us to come to church once or twice a month, and I'm not getting, if you come once or twice a month, God bless you. That's the average today, by the way, that's why I said that. Uh, uh, You can see I'm alone today. Uh, uh, Sometimes you just need a break, so I want to be careful there, you don't misunderstand me. Uh, but, but, But we have that to be out there the other six days of the week, living our lives with purpose, empowered to do what Jesus calls us to do. That's what Easter Tide's for, to figure out who we're going to be, We're supposed to have life in this. And anything short of an active belief in transformed life is, for John, an inadequate confession and belief. As we go through Eastertide, let us pray with one another that God grants us the grace to understand Easter and to practice a belief that generates life in us and around us. And when we don't get that perfect, as quite often I don't, Let us forgive one another, because that's our work. Amen.